a Flow Media production. Beautiful, a true crime memoir. Written by Cameron Lundgren. Narrated by Jesse Angeles. A tale of fast romance that escalated quickly into a heated exchange. One man now is left accused of a murder that he didn't commit and robbed of the grieving of his lost love. Chapter 14, Back to Black, After the Nightmare, September 2019. Things seemed to be fairly quiet since my night out with Chevy and Gabby. There was a group on Facebook, some people who had set up a month prior, essentially a think tank to how to charge me. I checked it daily as people would try to form their own conclusions on the case. Never in my favor. Unsure at why they allowed me, the monster, in there anyway. Probably because they just hope I would slip somehow. I was really losing my fight, even with the results of my lie detector test and the corrected police report and the correct bullet trajectory. I was not going to convince a bunch of people of my innocence when they were looking to blame someone for her murder, rather than acknowledge that just maybe Shana had done this to herself especially without a statement from the police department denouncing my involvement. Glenn mentioned the detectives had nothing on me and they speculated it was suicide. He simply suggested I needed to lay low and give it time, but lying low was lulling me into a deep depression. I had no intention on going back to work, nor was I in the mindset to find a job anyway. I was now a murder suspect. Who the hell was going to hire me? I sat in my home, my fortress, and watched Netflix on my phone, slumping deeper and deeper into the void. The mess from the intruder still hadn't been cleaned up, as I had had zero motivation to do anything about it. My couches were still slashed, TVs still smashed, walls still spray-painted. Each day that passed would take along with it any hope I had that my life would ever go back to normal. At least I still had Shana to talk to, or her spirit anyway. The numerous psychic encounters I had over the last few months had convinced me that she was still with me in this house, watching over me. I'd spent my days talking to her and slept with her crocs at night. As fate would have it, I was finding the same hopelessness Shana had. One morning, I was still lying in bed when I heard a knock at the door. I trudged downstairs, my pistol on my side, and I opened the door to find my mom standing there. Mom? I said as she pushed her way inside. Cameron, you've been going through so much and you can't do this on your own. Her eyes fell on all the damage and she sighed before turning to face me. I want you to come live with me and your stepdad. The look on her face told me this was non-negotiable. Where will I sleep? We can move your bed and anything else you want to bring and set it up in the basement. I know it's unfinished, but I worry about you here by yourself. She had a point. If I didn't do something now, I knew where this path was going to lead me. The entire family is on the way with trucks and trailers, and we're going to move you out of this house. Most of it obviously into storage. As promised, my brothers Joe and Logan, my sister Noelle, and my dad each arrived to help with the move. We exchanged hugs, and they each voiced their concerns and agreed that if I stayed in my home, I would find myself on the same path as Shana. The woman boxed 
and the men carried the boxes. With the large crew, it didn't even take long to pack it up. I was the last one to leave for mom's house when I realized I had a new Traeger smoker that I had just bought back in March in the backyard and had rarely used it since. Maybe I can consume my time preoccupying my mind with cooking. The problem was it was the biggest smoker they had, weight in over 200 pounds. My truck suspension had been lifted six inches, and as I dragged that smoker out of my backyard, I wondered how the hell I was supposed to hoist that bad boy into the back of my truck. After lugging it into the driveway, I assessed my options. I tilted the smoker onto its side, putting one side of the legs on my tailgate, and then in the most awkward fashion, I picked it up and lifted it into the back of the truck. I felt the searing pain shoot down my back and cursed myself for trying to do this on my own, but managed to finish the lift. I strapped it down and left for my mom's. The entire drive felt like my back was going to give out. We unloaded almost everything into the storage shed and set up my bed in her unfinished basement. I had my TV propped up on an empty cardboard box powered by an extension cord leading from upstairs. Aside from that, the rest of my room included my phone charger and a portable heating unit since winter was around the corner. That night, my mom and I stayed up late as we talked about old memories, laughed, had a few shots, and went to bed in good spirits. Lying in my new space, I couldn't help but feel that mom likely just saved my life. When I woke up, I tried to sit up but was stopped by the most excruciating pain that zipped through my whole body, rendering me paralyzed in a half-sitting position. I very slowly laid back down, hoping the pain would subside, and tried to turn my head to look for my phone, but the pain was unbearable. I was stuck. I started howling to get either my mom or my stepdad's attention, but the minute I inhaled, more jolts of pain shot down to my toes. My phone was on the floor, and there was no way I could reach it. And I wasn't even sure that anyone upstairs was even home to hear me. Without moving my head, I frantically scanned the room and came upon an alarm clock my mom had must have set that was just at arm's distance. Gritting my teeth, I grabbed it as fast as possible while fighting through blurred vision. Every movement, the pain growing more intense like putting a horse out of its misery. If a gun was close, I would have gladly used it. I managed to prop it up against my chest. Though I could barely look down to see without risking another jolt of agony, awkwardly, I set the alarm to go off in the next minute, hoping someone would hear it and grow concerned when I didn't shut it off. On cue, the alarm clock screamed for a few minutes before my mom eventually came down. Cameron, Are you going to turn that off or why are you laying like that? Call an ambulance was all I managed. Not even able to turn my head to look at her. Do what? Mom, I can't move. Please call an ambulance. I had some bad injuries in my life, but this was pain I had never felt before. I knew something was terribly wrong. When the paramedics and the firefighters showed up, We soon found out that the stretcher wouldn't fit down the curved stairway to the basement. So it was decided that they would carry me out. Every bump and sway on our way to the ambulance felt like shards of glass piercing my back. 
I was begging for pain meds by the time they wheeled me into the emergency room. A nurse assigned to me asked me to rate my pain on a scale of 1 to 10. Pain? Really? Pain? Please tell me you have something for me, I shouted, uncaring how crazy I sounded. I would rather die than wait a second longer for relief. Her stunned face disappeared out of the room as she went to find a doctor. Mom, please, get me something now. I heard the nurse in the hallway scream. He needs something for pain. Almost immediately, a new nurse rushed in and quickly administered an IV. Within a few minutes, I slipped into euphoria, and I couldn't control the blissful smile spread across my face as my eyes fluttered shut. The feeling was not only welcomed, but I had known it before. Long ago in 1999, when I had secured my first high-pressured sales job, I was only 20 at the time, selling high-ticket real estate development packages, surrounded by sales floor filled with other ambitious young dropouts. We were on the set of our very own boiler room, and success came with a price. I'd recreationally used drugs in those years, mainly marijuana mixed with booze while out frequently, partying. A colleague, Jonathan, came around one day and offered me an Oxycontin tablet, told me I could make money I'd never dream of if I sniffed the magic pill for sales echelon. The thought of success seduced me into taking it, and looking around, it was clear to see that my colleagues were equally motivated by various pills to achieve success. As long as the drugs kept coming, the salesmen were motivated to sell and any higher-ups turned a blind eye. I took the tablets daily for the first few months as my sales continued to skyrocket. One day, I looked around to see that I had become the top producer at work, making anywhere from $4,000 to $8,000 a week, making more money in a year than my parents did in 10. By month six, I had realized I developed a bad habit and quit cold turkey hoping I could maintain my new cash flow without the help of a narcotic. And then immediately felt sick, like I needed to check in a hospital sick. I had surely succumbed to the worst strain of the flu I had ever experienced. Unbearable aches and pains and profuse sweating. I was curled up in the fetal position on my bed, thinking I was going to die. I called off work that day and thus didn't buy my daily pills from my dealer a.k.a. my colleague. Jonathan, I feel like I'm going to die. What in the hell is wrong with me? Nearly screaming through the phone. Bro, you're in withdrawal. I'll be over in 10. He left the call like it wasn't a big deal. That the gross feeling would just go away. So I'd start it up again, continuing to rake in the thousands a week at work and setting aside around two grand each week for my Oxycontin habit. And then I met my ex-wife. Dating her only fueled my addiction as I spoiled her filthy with gifts from the money I was earning. But as addiction often goes, my little habit was kept secret from her. We had our first son in 2003 and we decided to get married. Shortly thereafter, she uncovered my addiction. With a new baby in the house, she gave me an ultimatum, rehab or a divorce. The next three years were a revolving door of getting clean and then relapsing. I was still working at the same sales job and the same drugs still ran rapid in the office, testing my sobriety daily. 
I knew the job was a trigger, but I also knew that I could provide so much for my little family if I continued on the same income trajectory. But after so many broken promises, eventually my wife gave up on me and handed me divorce papers, took my son, and left Utah. What was already a rocky sobriety turned into a full-blown downward spiral, and I got messy. So much that my job found out about my drug abuse. In an attempt to clean up their sales floor, our boss sent me and other high-earning performers to rehab. And the not-so-high-earning performers got the boot. By 2016, rehab was a lost cause by this point. Even though our company had done a good job of trying to make drugs inaccessible in the office, I had resorted to finding drugs on the street. Like my wife, eventually my job had had enough of me, and I, too, got the boot. I tried to stay afloat living off of the money I had accumulated over the last six years. But so much of the money I had already spent on my addiction. Once my savings was dangerously close to empty, I tried to make money selling my cars and boats. But that money just ended up back in my 2000 a week drug fund. Before I knew it, I was jobless. Didn't have my wife or son, was broke, and was homeless. I learned quickly to numb out the pain of going from the top to the bottom so quickly with the drugs. And then I discovered heroin was way cheaper than Oxycontin. It only took a week before another addict convinced me to shoot it up with a needle. A month in, I was taken to the hospital by overdosing. It took only three months on the stuff to find myself wandering through the gun section of Cabela's with enough heroin coursing through my veins for the cops to be called when a worker found me shooting up in the restroom. I was convicted of multiple felony accounts for possession. It was there in jail where I finally got sober. I'd only been there for a little more than a month and had written my ex two letters a day with the stamp provided by my family. Each letter was a variation of the same. I'm not a bad person. I still love you. I want to live a sober life with you forever. Though I wasn't expecting to, I finally received a letter back. My ex was willing to give me a second chance if I was truly focused on staying sober this time. After a short few months in jail, I got out, got clean, and transferred my probation to Albuquerque where my ex and my son had been living. In January 2007, my ex and I rekindled our romance and remarried our second son following that October. After the hell I had put my body and my family through, I knew that this time was different. This time I had the conviction to stay clean so I could support my wife and kids. That was the last time I had touched an opioid. Thank you again for joining us here on the podcast. Just a reminder, this podcast comes out every Monday and Wednesday, so go ahead and mark that on your calendar. Also, you can get this book on Amazon, so go ahead and click on the link below and you could either read along with us or you can skip ahead, find out what happens to Cam. Again, thanks so much for being here today. This is a Flow Media Production.